Conservative MPs have a problem, and that problem is Boris Johnson. Love him or hate him, the former PM looms large over the party. Following new Partygate allegations and upcoming COVID inquiry hearings, Johnson's unfinished business continues to make waves. His supporters argue that Rishi Sunak should make a role for his former boss, harnessing his star quality to win the next election. Others, though, are urging him not to touch him with a barge pole. The biggest barrier he now faces to being, frankly, a politician that's likely to get anywhere very far is that most people don't believe he tells the truth. Welcome to the I Podcast. I'm Serena Sandu, and in this week's episode, we will be unpacking what the former PM has been up to and why we're unlikely to see the back of him anytime soon. Later, we'll be hearing from legendary pollster Sir John Curtis about what the public thinks of Mr Johnson. But first, I'm joined by I's policy editor, Jane Merrick, to bring us up to date on how he's viewed in Westminster. Hi, Jane. Thank you so much for joining us. So who are Johnson's long-standing supporters and you know, how many are there in the Conservative Party? Boris Johnson has a lot of supporters who would potentially back him if he were to ever stand for leadership again. He's got a core group who are incredibly loyal, who believe that he is the only Prime Minister, Tory leader who would be able to defend the Conservatives' majority in the next election. But there are also wider supporters. So I think if we're thinking about sort of a future leadership election, I mean, he got close to 100 last October when Liz Truss resigned. But I think at the moment, there's quite a few of them are actually happy to see how Rishi Sunak does. We're probably talking about sort of 10, 20 who would be loyal now, who would wish that he was in charge, not Rishi Sunak. But ultimately, they want the Conservatives to win the next election. So it's about who is the best person to do that. So after famously or perhaps infamously having three PMs in a year, why do Johnson supporters want him to return as PM before the next general election? Yeah, some of them do. I mean, it's worth saying, actually, that there are a lot of Johnson supporters who think it's better for the Conservatives to just stay the course as Rishi Sunak. He's prime minister. He's getting a lot of things done in terms of trying to bring down inflation, trying to stop the small boats. He's made progress on post-Brexit arrangements where, you know, some MPs who support Boris Johnson aren't very happy with that, but it's quite a muted opposition to Rishi Sunak actively. But some of them do want him to return as Prime Minister. There isn't an active campaign going on, but there are discussions happening about at what point do they say, OK, we need to defend the Conservative majority. We think that Boris Johnson would be a better person to do this than Rishi Sunak. Therefore, when do we get Boris Johnson back? You know, a lot of it could be just pie in the sky because there are obviously lots of hurdles that Boris Johnson has to overcome. But that is where they are. They believe that he can do, he's in a, you know, a successful election winner. He won the first landslide majority for the Conservatives in years. And despite what's happened with Partygate, despite the fact that he had to resign last year over party sleaze, they still think that he is an election winner and potentially voters would still back the Conservatives next time if he were in charge. And particularly in those red wall seats, there are a lot of MPs who owe Boris Johnson their seats effectively that they won in 2019. And a few of them 
think that the only way they're going to hang on to their seats in the next election, which we're expecting at some point in 2024, is for Boris Johnson to be in charge. So regardless of what these supporters want, there's still quite a few obstacles to Johnson's ambition of returning. Firstly, there's another alleged lockdown break at Chequers. What can you tell us about this new allegation? So last week, it emerged that Cabinet Office legal department, which is going through all the diaries, WhatsApps, emails from current ministers, former ministers, ex-prime minister, including Boris Johnson, they're preparing all this material for the COVID inquiry, which is due to start in two weeks' time. In that trawler material that they are handing over, it was reported that they came across about 12 to 16 diary entries where Boris Johnson held meetings at Chequers around about 2021, which was when there were COVID restrictions in place. These potential lockdown restriction breaches were passed to the police and also to the Privileged Committee, which is investigating whether Boris Johnson misled Parliament over Partygate. Now, this enraged Boris Johnson's camp because they believe that the Privileges Committee is coming close to its final conclusions, its report into whether he told the truth in December 2021 when he said there was no partying going on in Number 10. They are angry because they believe that this reopens that and actually what MPs are investigating is more about what he told Parliament, not about further lockdown breaches. So they think that this is a sort of highly political attempt. And actually Boris Johnson's camp say that, that they can prove they were actually official meetings that needed to take place within the bounds of his work. And actually, obviously, Chequers is his official residence. So it's not like he was holding parties at Chequers and that we didn't know what was going on. But also they feel that this is chaff that's being thrown up, designed to undermine him as he's trying to clear his name effectively with the Privileges Committee. And he is also, obviously preparing to give evidence to the COVID inquiry. And it just confuses that situation, I think. So why is Rishi Sunak being dragged into all of this? So what allies of Boris Johnson are claiming that Rishi Sunak's key supporter in the cabinet, Oliver Dowden, who's the deputy prime minister, they're blaming him for being involved in this. Now, Oliver Dowden, I believe, has denied this and they've said it's ridiculous. I think the issue is that last week the Cabinet Office were insisting that ministers weren't involved in handing over this material. It was all the Cabinet Office legal team. But it emerged over the weekend that actually Jeremy Quinn, who's a paymaster general, he's a minister in the Cabinet Office, he did have a say-so over whether this material should be passed to the Privileges Committee, and he approved it. Now, allies of Boris Johnson are pointing out that Jeremy Quinn is the deputy of Oliver Dowden, and therefore they can see that this is a stitch-up orchestrated by Rishi Sunak. And I think that Number 10 would deny that. I think that's sort of a, a leap. There are two leaps there to go from Jeremy Quinn to Rishi Sunak. But it's certainly true that the Prime Minister would rather Boris Johnson wasn't a threat to him politically. But I think it would be highly risky for the Prime Minister actively inv be involved in trying to damage Boris Johnson. You could argue that, you know, the, the facts are already out there, that there is enough that was investigated by the Privileges Committee over Partygate for Boris Johnson to damage himself. So Jane, what's been going on in terms of the COVID inquiry? So it's really interesting that there were sort of so many things going on in, in terms of what Boris Johnson and other ministers did during the pandemic. And there is the police investigation, which has been reopened into whether lockdown breaches were happening under Boris Johnson's watch. There's the Privileges Committee 
which is investigating whether Boris Johnson misled Parliament. And then there's the COVID inquiry, a huge statutory inquiry, which starts in the middle of June. And that sort of encompasses everything. There is a huge document trawl going on inside government to present evidence to the COVID inquiry about who said what when during the pandemic. Now, all of these things are interrelated, but during that document trawl, it has thrown up different things that have sort of triggered the police reinvestigation and fresh evidence for the Privileges Committee. So the approach that Baroness Hallett is taking, she's the chairman of the COVID inquiry, is that we need to see everything. We need to get to the bottom of what happened, what decisions were made, why so many people ended up dying from COVID, why care homes were left open, what decisions were being made in hospitals, did that come from the top? Her background is she investigated the 7-7 inquiry into the July 7th bombings of 2005, and she was really critical of the response by the emergency services. And I think that gives a flavour of how robust she's going to be. This isn't going to be a whitewash. This is going to be a really robust forensic exercise into what the government did and didn't do into COVID. And so where we are now is that at the end of literally months of the inquiry, asking for messages, asking for emails, this huge documentary trawl, I think it's potentially millions of items of evidence. We have come to this point where we are two weeks away from the inquiry starting and the Cabinet Office has said, we are not going to hand over in full, unredacted WhatsApp messages, emails from a long list of people. This is Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, who was Chancellor at the time, Matt Hancock, who was Health Secretary at the time, Chris Whitty, Patrick Valance. A lot of the material they say is unambiguously irrelevant to the inquiry. But Lady Hallett's approach is that actually we need to see the full picture. We need to see where the dots potentially join. That if you think something is irrelevant, we might think it's relevant because we're trying to build this huge picture. Now, the Cabinet Officer's argument is that if we do this, this will set a damaging precedent for the release of highly sensitive government information. There's no suggestion that this is actually going to be all published and made public. We would probably find that a lot of this would be redacted anyway for, for public consumption. But Lady Hallett wants to see it all. But the Cabinet Officer's argument is that there is a principle here that a lot of this shouldn't leave Whitehall until the 20-year rule of disclosure is up. And even then, a lot of this will be sensitive. So they'd say that this is the precedent that they are not going to set because in future this could affect if we have another pandemic or there is another big scandal that happens and another inquiry is needed. Ministers and officials involved will be maybe wary of conducting this sort of business on WhatsApp. Now, you could argue, actually, the response to that is, well, these decisions shouldn't have been happening on WhatsApp. They should have been happening in a very a much more formal way. 4pm on Tuesday was the deadline for this material to be handed over. The Cabinet Office had been given a two-day extension of this deadline until Thursday. The Cabinet Office are refusing to hand over the information and Lady Hallett is still demanding the information. And we don't know whether it will be handed over or whether the government will go ahead with a judicial review. Now, where this leaves the COVID inquiry, which is supposed to start in the middle of June, there is a doubt over whether it's going to start on time. Lady Hallett has been insistent that it has to start on time because there are hundreds of thousands of families waiting for this to start and waiting for answers. But if this information isn't going to be handed over, then how can the inquiry possibly start without the full details? I guess worst case scenario, what could be in these WhatsApp messages? 
I think the worst case scenario for someone like Boris Johnson and other senior people involved in the pandemic is that there is a smoking gun, you know, something to do with a decision on care homes, for example. Probably the reality is it will just stuff that we probably know already. Dominic Cummings gave evidence to the Health Select Committee, I think a year ago, on the lax attitude that Boris Johnson took towards the virus at the very start. So it's a lot of stuff that we already know. And I think if we're looking for a smoking gun, I'm not sure whether there is something there, but I think it will be further embarrassment for Boris Johnson that he didn't really take a serious enough approach. Obviously, I'm speculating, but we learned during the pandemic, I think in 2021, that he didn't want another lockdown and he allegedly said, let the bodies pile high. So it would be that flavour of things. I think Boris Johnson has always insisted that these alleged remarks were a mischaracterization of what he was arguing for in number 10, but this is actually what the inquiry is designed to find out. It will really come down to when Boris Johnson gives evidence later this year, he will be grilled by the inquiry Casey, Hugo Keith, and they will really get to the bottom of what role did he play? Could he have done more to stop this virus running riot in February of 2020 before lockdown happened in March 2020? So it seems that COVID inquiry is going to shape the public's perception of Johnson. But another hurdle, according to a report from our colleague Richard Vaughan, about how much money the PM has made since leaving Downing Street, which is, I think, roughly four million, in comparison to his political record, which is, I think, attending nearly 190 Commons votes. Do we know how his party and his constituents feel about these prolonged absences and, I suppose, this difference in his work. Yeah, it's certainly true that, as Richard Vaughan reported, that he's made a lot of money. I mean, while he was Prime Minister, he obviously had to give up his lucrative Daily Telegraph column. He was reportedly complaining that he had money worries and that was struggling to pay mortgages and so on. I think there is no doubt that since leaving Downing Street, he's been able to make a tonne of money I think there is a sense among some maybe, not the core supporters of Boris Johnson, but maybe other MPs who feel that they're trying to make the argument that they want Boris Johnson to defend the Tory majority at the next election. Really, Boris Johnson has to be in the tea rooms. He's got to be doing the votes. So there is a sense there that, you know, there's a lot of loyalty to Boris Johnson. Probably it would be better for him to come back. I'm not sure about his constituents. Actually, he is a popular figure, obviously. I mean, he can do a walkabout and he can get mobbed by the public. But actually, it's quite a a small majority in Uxbridge at the moment. And I think he's at risk of losing that seat. I mean, there are actually reports around today that he could go for his old seat, which is much safer in Henley. It wouldn't look great because it would be seen as a sort of a a quite cynical attempt to, to cling on to power rather than defend his seat. There is a perception he's not as popular as he was as London mayor and as prime minister. I think a lot has changed. Partygate and party sleaze last year. It, it did damage his reputation quite a lot. And I think particularly with the COVID inquiry, it could be very damaging for him. I think it would be the biggest moment of his political career. How does all this internal fracture within the Conservative Party affect their chances at their next election, which could be 2024, do you think? It is potentially damaging. I mean, the public do not like disunited parties. The sense that Rishi Sunak brought unity to the party when he took over in October That reassured a lot of Tory MPs, even those that were really loyal to Boris Johnson. They thought, okay, he's stabilising. You know, we've just had the turmoil of Liz Truss and now Rishi Sunak is in. He's got this managerial approach to government. So 
a lot of MPs, even those who were loyal to Boris Johnson, would prefer the party to be united because that's how you win in the election. So yes, it is a big deal. I think it's also worth saying that the public are potentially ready for a change of party anyway, because the Conservatives have been in office for 13, it'll be 14 years by next year. And it's not a good luck for the party to be at war with itself. If the Conservative Party can make a convincing case that actually they've got someone to take over like Boris Johnson, can they make that case to the electorate that Boris Johnson can be effective in government? Personally, I think with the COVID inquiry and everything else, I think that will be very difficult. So there is a really tough argument for the party to make to the public that we care so little about the public that we're going to have a forced change of prime minister in less than two years. So it is damaging for the party to be disunited. Thank you so much, Jane. That was really great insight into the inner turmoil of the Conservative Party. Thank you. From COVID-19 to artificial intelligence, Jane's reporting gets right to the heart of how government policy affects our everyday lives. To support this important work and keep up with all the latest news and features, consider a subscription. Go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get more than 30% off a digital subscription to i. I, for open minds, subscribe today. Whoever is at the helm of the Conservative Party by the time the next general election rolls around, it will ultimately be the public who decides the next resident of number 10. Joining me now is legendary pollster John Curtis. So John, you recently looked into how Johnson is perceived amongst the public at the moment. So what did you find? Yeah, I mean, there are two things that strike you once you start looking at public attitudes towards the former Prime Minister. The first is that there is still an element of those people who either would vote Conservative now or voted Conservative in 2019, who say they think reasonably favourably about the former Prime Minister, and a minority of them, but you know, around two in five, go on to say that they would actually be happy to see him return as Prime Minister. So he's not without support amongst a section of the public. But the crucial point is that it is section with a capital S, by which I mean once you go beyond the ranks of current or former Conservative supporters, the Prime Minister is not at all popular. People are much more likely to say that they think unfavourably of him, that they think favourably of him. And just 5% of those people who support Labour or the Democrats say they will be happy to see Mr Johnson return to Downing Street. But the Prime Minister, who, you know, to give him his due, was very, very successful in 2019 in persuading many a person who hadn't previously voted Conservative to back him and his party, not least over the issue of Brexit and getting Brexit done, is now somebody who is pretty toxic so far as those who are not within the Conservative ranks. And even within the Conservative ranks, you can see some of Mr. Johnson's problem. Because at the end of the day, the biggest barrier he now faces to being, frankly, a politician that's likely to get anywhere very far is that most people don't believe he tells the truth. I quote but one example. I could find you many. 
But just a few weeks ago, YouGov asked people, do you think Mr Johnson is honest or dishonest? 72% of people said they were dishonest. And even amongst those who voted Conservative, over half take that view. And in a sense, Gito Harry, Mr Johnson's former media advisor, at least in the dying days of his premiership, who in a sense has accepted that perhaps Mr Johnson's relationship with the truth was a somewhat looser one than many people would regard as being desirable, if you look at some of those word clouds that are now favourite amongst pollsters in which they say to people, well, if I mention a name, what word comes to mind? The word that comes to mind for most people when they are asked about Boris Johnson is liar. And I think one therefore has to conclude that basically his credibility as a politician for the majority of the British public is basically disappeared and has been destroyed by the whole Partygate saga. So in terms of the public who may have recently turned against him, what impact has Partygate 2.0 had on them? Well, I think the honest truth is that, you know, all the figures I've basically been talking about are views that have been pretty clear amongst the public for quite some time. I mean, really, probably ever since the allegations about Partygate first broke all the way back in uh, December 2021. That pretty rapidly undermined Mr Johnson's reputation. And the question you have to ask yourself is, given the extent to which the original allegations about Partygate damaged his reputation, the way in which he never seemed to be able to recover from that, even when he was able to suggest he was leading the charge in the early days of the Ukraine war. I wouldn't necessarily assume that the continuation of the story, the fact that the cabinet offices referred his suggestion, the suggestions that now there were visits in checkers that perhaps broke lockdown rules, the continuing story occasionally and what's eventually going to happen with respect to the Privileges Committee and whether he's going to get suspended from the Commons and if so, for how long. Not entirely clear to me that any of this is going to make that much difference. His reputation is already so badly damaged, it's not clear it could get damaged much more. And those who are still willing in Conservative ranks to say, yes, they would still like him to return as Prime Minister, are probably now, I think, pretty much the diehards, those who do admire his other qualities, those who are sceptical about the lockdown rules, those who do still support Brexit, they're probably going to feel they haven't learnt anything new. So to that extent, at least, I think, you know, Mr Johnson's problem is now pretty long-standing. It's baked into public opinion. It's unlikely to be reversed. But I'm not sure that the continuation of this story is going to do Mr Johnson himself any particular harm. Does his reputation pose a problem for the current prime minister ahead of a general election? And if so, what is the problem? If you look at the history of the Conservative Party's position in the opinion polls during the course of this parliament, for the first two years, until, first of all, the argument about Owen Patterson, the former Tory MP who was due to be suspended for the House of Commons for breaching the rules on lobbying, and which Mr Johnson tried to get that suspension overturned, until that turned up, followed very shortly thereafter by the row about Partygate, Mr Johnson looked like a politician who had not only managed to achieve this quite remarkable victory in December 2019, but was somebody who had defied the rules of electoral gravity. For the whole of that period, 
the government was never behind the Labour Party in the opinion polls. Despite all the travails about COVID, the damage that did to the economy, etc., etc., this was still a popular prime minister, or at least a popular prime minister amongst Leave voters. He was never popular amongst the public in general, but he was popular amongst Leave voters, and his party was still ahead in the polls. But ever since the first stories about Partygate emerged early in December 2021, the Conservatives have always been behind in the polls. That thereafter was then compounded by the fact that his successor, Liz Truss, managed to preside over a financial crisis that was generated by the government itself. So it's not Mr Johnson alone that Mr Sunak doesn't want the public to be reminded of. It's neither Mr Johnson nor Ms Truss. Essentially, Central to the Conservatives' strategy between now and the general election, presumably towards the back end of next year, is to hope that by having now Mr Sunak, somebody whose resignation was amongst those that helped to precipitate the collapse of Mr Johnson's government in July 22, and the fact that Mr Sunak stood against Liz Truss and was sacked by her, or at least was not invited back into the administration, that he therefore presents a different face, a different administration, and that also as somebody who at least is less unpopular than his party, he can help to turn things around. And you know, there's been a bit of progress since he became prime minister, although the truth is it's been pretty glacial in its speed. He certainly therefore does not want either Liz Truss or Boris Johnson to be prominent in the headlines. And of course, insofar as there is still a risk of allegations about Partygate still emerge, that is not something that Mr Sunak will welcome. He wants the public to draw a line under his predecessors. Partygate returning, and in a sense, you know, reports of tensions between Mr Johnson and his lawyers and the Cabinet Office, and claims of political stitch-up, and the way in which this potentially adds to some of the tensions that clearly still exist inside the Conservative Parliamentary Party and the risk that does of creating a a sense of division inside uh, the Conservative Party. All of that means Mr Sunak will not welcome any suggestion that Mr Johnson is going to be prominent in the headlines anytime soon. So a campaigning role would be out of the question? Oh yes. Look, to be perfectly frank, there isn't much point in having as a major campaigner for you somebody who the majority of the public do not believe tells the truth. Given that's the case, promises made by Boris Johnson are likely to be regarded with a very, very high level of scepticism. You know, Mr Johnson was an electoral asset to his party in 2019, but people who were once an electoral asset are not necessarily always an electoral asset. And the other obvious person for whom that was true is Tony Blair. Tony Blair was undoubtedly an asset to his party in 1997. By 2005, he was already a drag on his party, which is why, in the end, Labour MPs effectively eased his passage out of office. The fascinating thing about all this, you know, Partygate undid Boris Johnson in a sense It illustrated both the strengths and the weaknesses of Mr. Johnson's premiership. The strength of Boris Johnson's premiership was that he was somebody who was very focused 
on achieving objectives. That therefore meant that along the way, he was not somebody who was desperately exercised about due process. It was illustrated, for example, very early in his premiership by the way in which you know, he prorogued Parliament in September 2019. In the end, Supreme Court deemed to be unlawful. But that did not do him significant political damage. Why? Because at least half the public believed in what he was doing. They believed that Parliament was trying to stop Brexit being implemented and Leave voters therefore approved of what he had done. Frankly, during the pandemic, it never really did much harm because at the end of the day, all of us, frankly, wanted doctors and nurses to have PPE. We weren't too concerned about how we got them. And we were certainly wanted a vaccine for COVID sooner rather than later. And the fact that we bought a whole load of COVID vaccines at a time when it was extremely doubtful whether any of them would actually work was regarded as an entirely acceptable risk. The problem he faced, however, is that style was his undoing when it came to Owen Patterson and Partygate. And there certainly wasn't a constituency that said, well, I may not have been able to attend my mother's funeral. I may not have been able to visit my wife who has dementia, who is in a care home. But of course, it's fine to have leaving parties for members of staff in Downing Street. That strength of Boris Johnson of being able to get things done proved to his undoing when in getting things done, he was doing things for which there wasn't any constituency of support. As a result... He's now very, very much damaged goods. So that's all for this week. You can follow Jane's reporting, as well as breaking news, in-depth features and insightful political analysis at inews.co.uk. As ever, we'd love to hear your feedback, so drop us a line at podcasts at inews.co.uk. I am Serena Sandu and you can find me on Twitter at Serena Sandu one Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next week. <laughs>